Well, we continue in our series today. It's the last one, wrapping that up. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, like I said, moving on to our, our new series in the summertime as well. But have you ever walked through a cemetery at all? And I'm not talking about trying to take a shortcut to get to where you need to be, but uh, actually intentionally walking through a cemetery. With Memorial Day tomorrow, uh, you may have plans to visit the Willamette National Cemetery, although they're not doing any kind of things over there, or, but you can at least still visit. But maybe you know, walk among the grave markers of those who have made that ultimate sacrifice of their own life for our freedom. And if so, you'll come across some very old tombstones out there. It depends on what area you're at. Maybe not so much at the Willamette National Cemetery, but at other older cemeteries, you'll come across some interesting sayings on those tombstones. And uh, it's difficult to walk past without glancing at some of those epitaphs. But uh, those old cemeteries hold some pretty interesting things. Back in Ohio, where my father is buried, at the uh, Mound Hill Cemetery in Seville, Ohio. He's in good company there because most of the Steele family is buried there. And uh, there's a whole gigantic section there. You'd see all these uh, tombstones that have the name Steele on them. And, uh, but also, too, there's a, a couple there that was buried a long time ago. And they were known as uh, the Giants of Seville. It's uh, Martin Bates. He was uh, seven foot nine. And his wife, uh, Anna, uh, she was seven foot eleven. <laughs> and so these two people lived back then. Uh, he was known as the Kentucky River Giant because he lived in Kentucky and made his way to Seville, Ohio, and made home there and with his wife Anna. And uh, she was known as the Giantess of Nova Scotia. But uh, anyway, the the their uh, their tombstone is more of a monument. It's like gigantically tall and huge. You can't miss it. It has a big old word, Bates, on it. And, and, uh, but there's a huge history behind that, I guess. You can look it up online. They apparently, this is sad, they apparently had a baby, an infant boy, but he only uh, lived for about 11 days. He died. And uh, he's also buried with them as well, too, <clears throat> there. And, uh, but he, <laughs> and I hope my, <laughs> my daughter-in-laws aren't listening to this right now because uh, Amanda and Lauren are both uh, expecting here really soon. Uh, but uh, the infant boy was 30 inches long, and he weighed 23 pounds. So we're talking, but I mean, you got a 7 foot 11 mom. Uh, I think that's probably going to be about the right size there. But oh my goodness, you wonder how big the head was. And then, anyway, yeah. But you'll see about everything. Uh, over the cemeteries, and maybe you've heard some of the more unusual ones. There's one in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, that reads, Here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. He stepped on the gas instead of the brake. <laughs> or the one in Boot, Boot Hill Cemetery in Tombstone, Arizona, says, and you've probably heard this one before, Here lies Lester Moore, who took four slugs from a 44. No less, no more. <laughs> and there's one in Thurmont, uh, uh, Maryland. That reads, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. But, yeah. And contrast that with a tombstone in Alabama. It says, Solomon Pease. Pease is not here, only the pod. Pease shelled out and went home to God. <laughs> and then there's the tombstone of a hypochondriac that reads, I told you I was sick. 
<laughs> anyway, we get, we get really curious, though, when we walk past the tombstone because we want to catch a glimpse of who's buried there. I know I do. I look at when we've gone to Willamette Cemetery before, looking at the tombstones there and, and, and all that, you get really curious of what was this person like. And the epitaph gives, uh, gives you a snapshot of the individuals. And sometimes you can even learn something about their priorities and what was important to them. But there are so many lives that we don't even know about that have touched other lives that are, that are gone and buried, and all you get to see is the tombstone. But what do you want others to say when you are gone? Do you want them to say her home was always nicely landscaped? <laughs> or he never was late for work? Hey, those are fine, but in the big scheme of things, wouldn't you rather have words on your tombstone to say something that would last beyond your grave, possibly? Maybe something like, here lies a godly man who always kept his word. Or, sim- you know, simply put, uh, your name, and then in Christ alone I place my trust. What do you think your loved ones will put on your tombstone? Now keep in mind, the engraver's charged by the word. I know that's, it gets expensive. So don't expect a novel. And maybe you heard about uh, the widow who was turning in her husband's obituary in the local newspaper. She wrote a glowing, lengthy description, even though they had quite a rocky relationship. After handing it to the editor, he explained to the widow that the first three words were free, but after that she had to pay by the word. So she took the paper back and quickly shortened the obituary to read simply, Boat for sale. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> yeah, obituaries, funeral services, graveyards. They have a way of reminding all of us of our humanity and our need to live this life with the next one in mind. We want to wrap up this series on this Memorial Day weekend with a very timely topic of looking at the legacy you'll leave. Tomorrow, some of you will be visiting the gravesides of those loved ones who have left a legacy in some way or another. And understand that you will leave a legacy. You will. Everyone will. The only question is whether or not it will be a positive one or a negative one. So let me suggest three ways you can assure that your legacy is a positive one. So first, strive to leave a legacy of love. Strive to leave a legacy of love. Your life can out- outlive its duration on this earth. Your family tree can become a, a testimony to your life and the influence of Christ. John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So what are you passing along to your family, and your friends? Is love a part of the branches of your family tree? Or are you or are unreal expectations and demands the normal thing? You probably heard about the story about the, the mother of a well-known entertainer, Barbara Streisand. Uh, her mother passed away several years ago, but the relationship had long been strained when Barbara had her big comeback concert at Madison Square Garden. And her mother was 85 years old. And Barbara greeted her mother in the second row and asked her, Are you proud of me now, Mama? So their relationship was so strained in that way. Are you proud of me now? 
Some of you can probably relate to this strife firsthand. Maybe some of you can relate to it, in fact, as far as with maybe your kids, that maybe they wonder if you're proud of them at all in any way. And like Barbara Streisand, you're still waiting and wishing for a blessing from your mom or for some word of affirmation from your father. And for some of you, it's too late. For me, my, my parents have passed away, and so I, I can't get that anymore. But parents, parents, make the choice. Break the cycle. Don't withhold that gift from your children, regardless of their age, even the adult, your adult children. We can live in the past or we can learn from the past. I trust we'll learn from it, not live in it. There's no wisdom in repeating the sins of previous generations. Radio personality Paul Harvey used to say, when it comes to our children, you spell love, T-I-M-E. And it's true. You do. I know for us, Becky and I, we, have, uh, we, we strive to be there for our kids. And when they're little, we, we were there for them when they're doing all this stuff. And even these days, we try to be there for them and uh, um, spend time with them. In fact, uh, yesterday we took time to go up to Lacey to see Anthony and Lauren before Lauren's about ready to pop. She's due on the 6th, and she's going to uh, give us another grandchild. But uh, they wanted us to come up and see them, and we decided also, too, to drop by Jameson and Emmy and see them in Kelso as well. So we have that as priority, be there for our kids no matter what. And the Apostle Paul gives us a picture of what this love looks like when it is full-grown and mature. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, familiar verse, you go to probably every time when you think about love, verses 7 and 8 says, It always protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. A love that always protects. Think about it. It's like a, a mesh fence or chicken wire around a garden protects the fruit from predators. This love does that. This love protects. That's what true love does. And did you notice the, the, the repeated word there? Always. Always. It's throughout the list. And you see, love is no respecter of persons it doesn't see what can be gained by our love it has no strings attached whether the love is deserved or not that isn't a factor we love others and you might say well <laughs> but paul never met my high maintenance parents <laughs> you don't understand or or my demanding boss you just don't understand surely i don't need to love them there's got to be some exceptions and I'm here to say today, no, <laughs> you're wrong. There are no exceptions. And the word for protect here is the word stego. And it's like a, a roof that keeps off something that threatens it, like shelter. Literally, love is like that. Lo love covers and protects. And the Apostle Peter echoed Paul's message and said in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And 1 Corinthians chapter 13 speaks of a persevering love, one that keeps going when the cheap version of love throws in the towel. There were two great plagues that swept uh, uh, through the Roman Empire in the early years of Christianity. One came in, in uh, 165 AD and the other came in 251 AD. And both times those plagues killed a third of the population of the Roman Empire. A third 
You thought the coronavirus was bad. It's incredible. And the pagans tried to avoid contact with people who had that plague. In fact, there are stories about pagans taking sick people out and literally throwing them in the gutter to die so they didn't have to be near them and risk getting the disease themselves. And then Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick, even though some of them died doing so. Christians were very visible during this time. One historian wrote, Never had the world seen such a dispensation of alms as was now organized by the church. She helped widows, orphans, the sick, prisoners, and victims of natural catastrophes. She frequently intervened to protect the lower orders from unusual exploitation. There was a time in, in the history of the church when that was the norm for the church. We went out and we cared for people like that. And that time can come again and we can be part of it again. That's part of oneness. And that's the type of outreach that will never be realized if you and I don't take seriously Jesus' words when he says, love one another. By this, others will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And I can't express that any, any deeper. There's just enough to be able to say about these things, about loving one another, especially during these times when we're kind of transitioning out of, of, of uh, covid and, and hitting some interesting situations. <laughs> Coming to church, some of us masked, some of us not. Um, wondering if you know, some of us vaccinated, some of us not. And having just the grace and the mercy among one another. That's what needs to be happening. They will know, they will know when we love one another. We need to be doing that. There's a reason in 1 Corinthians 13 that the first attribute listed is love. This concept is reinforced by the fact that the chapter concludes by saying in verse 13, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So you might, you might ask, why is love better? It's better than faith and hope. Well, the others will pass, and there will be, there will be no need for them. Once we get to heaven, there will be no need for faith. Or for hope. We're living in it <laughs> eternally. But love, love is different and distinctive. Love is eternal. And in heaven, love will be everywhere. And like I said, next uh, Sunday we start the new series in Fruit of the Spirit. And we'll talk about love a little bit more on that first, uh, first day of summer. So there's a second legacy we need to leave. That legacy is the legacy of faith. A legacy of faith. If God has blessed you with children, faith is the greatest thing you can pass on to them. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, it says, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. And that is a general rule, Solomon is saying. And it's not a promise, it's, it's a principle. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. So maybe God wants you to break a cycle of dysfunction in your family line. One of the greatest blessings of remaining faithful to God in His purposes is that you are rewarded with a powerful legacy. You realize that your life could outlive your days on earth. 
And when Becky and I got together, and I mentioned this before, we said that we were going to be starting a spiritual heritage in our home. This would be the beginning of a spiritual heritage for the Steele family. Now, she grew up in a Christian home. The Nauman family, what a support. <laughs> but my side of the family, not so much. And so we determined that this would be the beginning of a spiritual heritage for our family. And that's what we focused on, realizing that we could outlive ourselves, allowing our kids continue on the spiritual heritage. Someone once said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. John summed up the way a Christian should view passing the baton of faith to future generations. In, in 3 John uh, chapter 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And it is, it is true. There's no better joy in that. What do you pray that people will whisper as they file past your casket? You made it. <laughs> I'll catch up with you in heaven. Or, thanks for the example. <laughs> maybe, maybe you hope to hear someone say, look, he's moving. <laughs> That's pretty unlikely. Pretty unlikely. But if you don't hear something like that, then maybe you'll hear a phrase like, we're going to miss you and your integrity at the office. Or, because of your witness, I know the Lord. And as good as all those would be, what if you were to live your life in such a way that when one of your children walked past, he or she would say, thanks, Dad, for showing me the love of Christ. Or, thanks, Mom, for being a model of Jesus to me. There's something even more important than what imperfect people or family members say about you when you die. You see, you might be able to fool them, <laughs> but you can't fool an all-seeing God. He weighs your motives. He knows your character. He is well aware of whether you have truly yielded your life to him or not, or if you're you know, still on the throne of your life. The way he chooses to sum up your life in a dozen words will be the only thing that matters when eternity hangs in the balance. For those who have swallowed their pride and placed their trust for eternal life in Jesus Christ alone, the final epitaph will be spoken, not engraved by the creator of the universe. If you live a life that has honored Christ, you will hear the greatest 12-word statement, well done, good and faithful servant, come and share your master's happiness. And it's in those 12 words, that epitaph, that will usher you into heaven for all eternity. Now, whether you are a first-generation Christian who is starting this, this legacy, or you have a family tree of believers and and you are continuing to add generational links for a legacy, stay the course. Don't give up. Continue on. Andy Stanley points out, he says, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do, but someone you raise. If you believe that, it will revolutionize the way you strive to leave a legacy of faith to your family. You know, we've all made mistakes and wish we could have some do-overs, right? But we can learn from our past rather than live in it. Learn from it, make the corrections, continue on. Solomon said in Proverbs 22, verse 1, A good name is better than riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. It doesn't matter how rich you might be able to have in, in all these external things. 
good name is so much better. You will never regret approaching life with that in mind. So let me share one more characteristic of the legacy you need to leave, and that's a legacy of unity. Legacy of unity. Now, we started the series talking about the need for unity. So it seems fitting to bookend it by reinforcing that challenge. There's a reason this series is, is titled One. There's a reason why we say one hope, one truth, one way. We're, 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 where, where division and separation exist, Jesus is the answer to that. In the last 40 or so years, our nation has made some great strides in racial harmony. But you know what? Through the events in Ferguson, Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland with Freddie Gray, Charleston, South Carolina, where the church was shot up, Brunswick, Georgia, where Ahmed Aubrey was shot, and of course, Minneapolis, Minnesota with George Floyd, Louisville, Kentucky with Brona Taylor. We are quickly reminded that we still have a long way to go. <laughs> The secret to the church standing together and the unity that Jesus prays for in John chapter 17 is found in one word that occurs ten times in Acts and once in Romans. And this word is the key to understanding how the early church had unity in the middle of diversity and how we can have that unity as well. We can be united in Christ despite ethnicity, despite nationality, or ideology, and even differences of opinion, right? Differences of opinion. The term in the Greek is homothumadin. Homothumadin. And it means of one accord, of one mind and purpose. It's the idea of having unity without conformity. Kyle Eidelman, uh, author of the book Not a Fan, he wrote this. He said, if you read through Luke's description of the early church, you see the word appear again and again. He speaks of the disciples and family of Jesus gathered in the upper room with one accord. In Acts chapter 2, he speaks of the growing Christian community continuing with one accord. After the arrest and then release of Peter and John by the Sanhedrin, Acts 4 says the believers glorified God with one accord. In chapter 5 and again in chapter 8, after the death of Stephen, John speaks of the church gathering and listening to the gospel with one accord. And Luke repeatedly uses the word homothumadin to describe the harmony of the early Christian community. They were able to have unity without conformity. They were able to walk arm in arm without seeing eye to eye. And that is the church. That's where we should be walking. That's how we should be going arm in arm, even though we don't see eye to eye. It's significant because the early church was dealing with as many potentially divisive issues as we are today. Their issues were different, but those issues were just as sensitive as any we have. There were racial divisions and tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles. People were trying to fight long-held traditions. Some wanted to keep the traditions, but others didn't. There was controversy over circumcision and, and eating meat. So the question is, how did they have this single-mindedness? How did they have this homothumadin? Christ united them and bound them together. It was Jesus. Simply put, their unity and our unity must stem solely from the fact that we are sinners forgiven by the undeserved grace of Jesus Christ. <laughs> we are under grace. 
Jesus is the common denominator that allows a small group, a large Bible study, a large church to be unified. And he unites us together. John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21 says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Maybe God is counting on you to cross some lines and have some conversations with people who are different than you in some way or another. Years ago, Jackie Robinson became the first African-American to be on a Major League Baseball team. He played for the Brooklyn Dodgers. I'll forgive him for that. But uh, it was difficult because everywhere Robinson went, there were racial slurs and attacks. One day, Jackie Robinson was playing in front of the home crowd and he made a crucial error. Because a runner was not on base, the Dodgers manager had to make a pitching change. While the new pitcher was warming up, the hometown fans turned on Robinson and began to just boo him mercilessly. And the crowd began uh, hurling racial slurs at him. Jackie Robinson went and stood on second base with dropped shoulders, just standing there. Now, Pee Wee Reese was playing shortstop at the time, and he was one of the most respected players on the team. The fans loved him. Quietly, he just walked over to his friend Jackie, stood beside him, and put his arm around his shoulder. That's all he did. Gradually, the jeering stopped, and Robinson was encouraged to stay the course in spite of the opposition. And Jackie Robinson later said, that arm about my shoulder probably saved my career. You want to endear yourself to someone for life? Find somebody you know who is under pressure, under strife, and go put an arm around their shoulder. You don't have to see eye to eye. (laughs) Maybe just say, I'm praying for you. Or send them an encouraging text or buy them a gift card for no apparent reason. Whatever. The church should be a place of unity. Christians should be leading and setting that example, making a difference and crossing man-made boundaries. Now, we're not not talking about pacifying others and and acting like things are fine on the surface when they really aren't. We need to confront. (laughs) I've heard it said, though, that the difference between union and unity is this. You can tie two cat's tails together and have union, but you certainly won't have unity. But to have unity, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes involvement, and and taking some intentional steps forward. We can come from here and go, that sounded great, those are a wonderful message, great, and then do nothing about it. But if you come away from here and find something to, to do about this, to get out there and actually get involved, take some steps forward, being intentional about this. First of all, of course, you can regularly pray and ask God to cross your path with those who are from a different culture, maybe. Then maybe be certain to take advantage of those divine appointments when he brings them along. I'm I'm reminded of the example of uh, a guy named Oshawa Hawthorne. Maybe you remember him. He came here to our church, missionary, and he's missionary to those uh, immigrants in Portland who just have uh, no church, whatever, Muslims and, and, and Middle East people, all sorts of people. And he was a person that just, he, he had lunch with them or he stayed with them or he brought them inside their home and had some students staying inside his home and 
and he was able to have the opportunity to join them when they went back home, back to the Middle East, and they invited him to their places. Opportunity to share the gospel where the gospel probably wouldn't even be shared, but to be able to reach into people's lives and to realize that they also too need the love of Christ. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's impossible to back your way into leaving a legacy of unity. You can't back into it. You've got to be intentional about it. You will have to be willing to take some risks and, of course, be intentional. Our world would be a better place if Christ became our uniting focus and force. When he is prior, priority in our lives, then that drives us forward in the right direction. When you reach out to those of different backgrounds and different beliefs, different skin colors and walks of life, you always learn something and gain a greater appreciation for the road that individual has walked. So be a uniter, not a divider. Be intentional, not complacent, and leave a legacy of unity. That becomes possible if Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life, as it won't matter skin color before you. You see that person created in the image of God. And if God loves them, so do you. Get to know them. What kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of legacy do you want to leave? Legacy of love? Legacy of faith? Legacy of unity. Those three will get you started on the right track. I'm going to invite the worship team up with Annie and Don. They're going to lead us in a couple songs here as we're going to um, end our time here together. And I trust that again, it will just kind of focus us in on, uh, on what God has spoken to your heart. And remember, there is more to life than can be squeezed between two dates on a tombstone. There is eternity eternity. As one person put it, the length of your life is up to God. The legacy of your life is up to you. Let me say that again. The length of your life, it's up to God. The legacy of your life is up to you. So live this life for Jesus and your legacy will be rich because it can last forever. If you need to respond to God in some way, the altar is open. If you just need to pray right there too, go right ahead. I just encourage you, though, in some way, if the Holy Spirit has been speaking to your heart, respond in some way in obedience. Respond in some way in affirmation of what God is doing in your life.